Hi, welcome to Exploring the Illusion of Free Will. My name is George Ortega, and this is June 2nd, 2014, episode number 159, Free Will, Refutation, Cost, Climate Change Denial, Part 2. Okay, and so basically in this series, which may take, who knows, 10, 20 episodes, we're going to go through this book page by page. I just published a book called Free Will, Its Refutation, Societal Cost, and Role in Climate Change Denial, that while it's a a brief book, it's only 56 pages, I crafted it as a scholarly work. It's got 50 citations. You know, it's not really for the the popular audience, but basically the, the premise of this book is that understanding that free will is an illusion isn't just a philosophical, interesting truth that doesn't really have consequences. What, what I do in this book is that I implicate free will belief in climate change denial. In other words, like about 44% of people here in the United States believe that climate change is happening and we're causing it, meaning that 66% are in denial about it. And so... Part of what I propose in this book, my hypothesis, my theory, is that much of this denial is explained through the free will belief. In other words, very briefly, in order to to be in denial about something, denial is like an unconscious process that we we resort to when we feel really bad, really we're we're threatened by some information. It it threatens who we believe we are, and, and we begin to feel guilty about what we're being indicted with. So in this case, we're being indicted with, with causing the climate change that is threatening, you know, the lives of billions of people over the next decades, you know, over the next centuries, really. So because people can't handle that, they deny that climate change is happening. And so the premise of this book is like, in order to, to feel guilty about something, you first have to believe you have a free will. If you believe, if you understand that you don't have a free will, yeah, you might say, fine, you, you, we do wrong things, but you don't feel guilty about it. Like, for example, I understand that I'm part of this, you know, of, of humanities contributing to climate change. You know, we all contribute, right? But because I don't, because I understand that we don't have a free will, I don't blame myself. I don't blame others. I don't, and as a result, I don't feel guilty. And as a result of not feeling, it's not that I, I don't, I'm not conscientious about it and that I'm, you know, that I don't believe it's very important to do as much as we can about it, because actually that's the purpose of the book. But because I don't feel personally guilty, because I, I don't believe in free will, that means that I don't really go into denial about it. I'm, I'm able to face it, you know, squarely and objectively. And so, like, to the extent that, uh, that people are able to understand that free will is an illusion, we can address this climate change denial, which is right now actually what's preventing us from, from successfully taking meaningful steps at, at um, adapting to it and mitigating it, you know, which is very, very important. We have to do much more. All right, so that's the basic premise. And I, I went through a basic outline of the book in the last episode, so it, it's probably up on YouTube by now. Um, so we're on page two. Um, because again, I'm going to go through this like page by page. Um, So basically, before implicating free will belief in not just climate change denial, but a host of, of personal and social harms, like, you know, more blame, more vengeance, more anger, more aggression, more violence, 
more depression. You know, I, I go through some research that, that links those behaviors to blaming behavior, and then naturally the link is between blaming behavior and free will belief. So, um, so basically before I do that, I present um, five proofs of the causality that refutes free will. In other words, like the, the harm that free will belief does to our world and, you know, in provoking, in um, encouraging climate change denial um, is predicated on understanding that um, the benefit of, of, of this understanding, you have to understand that free will is an illusion before you can really appreciate you know, the value of understanding the free will is an illusion. You know, in other words, like before you can appreciate the harm that it does and its link, its role in climate change denial, you have to pretty much be convinced that uh, free will is an illusion. So that's what the first part of the book is. And I'm going to read this because, like, it basically um, presents what, what I'll be going through in the next chapter, which is um, chapter two, causality and free will. So basically it says, free will is prohibited by a causal principle that is A, universal and a priori, B, necessary to quantum mechanical prediction, C, required by the law of conservation of momentum, D, necessary to the scientific method, and E, a result of the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, HUP, and evident in simultaneous particle position and momentum measurement. Okay, so like basically this, this part of the book that'll be the next chapter is going to get into the deep physics of this. And, you know, to, to many people, it may not be necessarily accessible. But again, I wrote this book not really for the general public. I wrote the, this book for the academics, for physicists, for psychologists, for philosophers, who if they don't understand the physics themselves, then they can consult with their colleagues to get, uh, get a better understanding of, of why... Uh, causality, you know, is a fact of nature and, and how it uh, refutes free will. Okay, then like in addition to that, you know, some people say that, um, some people say that no, not everything is caused. So like, so I refute that and they, they, they say that like, you know, some things are indeterministic or random or, or acausal or causa sui or ex nihilo. You know, these are different terms to describe certain mechanisms that people have proposed. So, the other thing that I do in this book is I say, well, even if you were right, you know, you're not because, like, basically causality is so fundamental, it's a priori, you can't, you know, it's indisputable. But even if things were uncaused or even if, like, our decisions caused themselves or if nature was fundamentally indeterministic or if, if reality arose ex nihilo, even if that was the case, that wouldn't that wouldn't present a case for free will because like for example something if a decision is uncaused you can't attribute it to a human being if uh, a decision is causing itself again you can't attribute it to the human being so anyway i go through so these these various kinds of mechanisms that have been proposed okay and so like the four then i got the four articles then i that i'll be reviewing because after after that section of of explaining why causality refutes free will and explaining causality as a priori, you know, you know, what I just went through, then I'm going to be reviewing four articles that have been published um, by philosophers, in one case a doctor, in two cases uh, psychologists, or two cases philosophers, one psychologist. So the, um, the four articles that I'm going to be reviewing 
are Baumeister 2008, and the title of that article is uh, Free Will in Scientific Psychology, and it was published in Perspectives on Psychological Science in 2008, okay? That's the first article. Then there's another one by um, a philosopher named Fingeret, and he also published his article in 2008, and it was called Free Choice, and it was published in Current, Psycholo Current Psychology, okay? And uh, then the third article that I review is by a philosopher named Mealy, and he, he published his article in 2012, and um, it's called Another Scientific Threat to Free Will? Question mark, And it's published in Monist. The, the, and these are all peer-reviewed journals. They're, they're professional journals. They're not like, you know, standard po popular magazines. And I shouldn't be going through all this, I guess, now, but might as well. One more. Um, the other one is by an MD. His name is Mayer, and he published his article in 2011. And um, the title of his article is, Is Free Will an Illusion? Question mark. And, like, it's published in Ethics and Medicine. Okay, so basically what I do is like I just like present their articles, quoting them when I need to, because I think when you know when they're presenting their their defenses of free will, it's important to that that um, that I describe them accurately. So I quote them, you know, as necessary, and then I apply this principle of causality to what they claim defends free will. You know, basically refuting it by this, this, um, this general understanding that everything has a cause, that, you know, causality refutes free will. Okay. Um, and so then, you know, like after that, um, basically, as I said, um, there's a couple of researchers, Voos and Schooler, who in 2008, they became afraid. See, like, back in, in 1983, this guy, Benjamin Labette, he published an experiment where he asked people to flex their wrist or their finger, right? But he asked the, the subjects in this experiment that, like, the moment that you decide that you're going to do this, you know, notice it on a clock and then let us know. Let the research or the experimenters know, okay? So they did this, right? And what they found was that motor activity, because they had these subjects hooked up to... Um, a functional MRI or an EEG that, that measured their brain waves, that, that measured the electri electrical activity that determined um, when they were conscious of making the decision, or, you know, the, the, um, the, no, the, the unconscious activity at the time, and they, they used an electromyogram to measure the muscle activity of when the actual motion um, took place. And what they discovered is that the unconscious had already initiated motor activity for the, the flexing of the wrist or the finger about 300 milliseconds before the person reported being consciously aware of making the decision. Okay, so essentially, like, the unconscious had already made the decision before the, um, the, um, the subjects reported being conscious of it. Now, you might say 300 milliseconds is... Um, is not very much, but like, as I'll get into later in the book somewhat, back in 2008, uh, a team of researchers replicated the experiment, and in their experiment, they found that actually the unconscious was initiating motor activity 
between seven and ten full seconds before the subjects were aware of their decision to to move. I, I, I don't remember exactly what the behavior was in that decision, but, but basically seven seconds before their conscious decision to act. So anyway, so like that was one research. And then Barge, this guy John Barge of Yale, he did priming experiments where he basically primed... Um, Priming is a way to induce someone toward a certain behavior without their knowledge of the manipulation. For example, they would put a picture of a library <laughs> in a room, and they noticed when that happened, people sp spoke more softly <laughs> in the room. And so what happens is like people aren't aware of the manipulation. It's on a subconscious level. And if you ask them, well, why did you speak so softly? They'd invent a reason. They wouldn't, they wouldn't you know they wouldn't be aware that it was because of the, this uh, picture of, of a library on the wall. All right, so that was another one. And then this uh, Wegner, Daniel Wegner, who unfortunately just died a couple of um, years ago, I believe, uh, he pioneered this. In 2002, he published this pivotal landmark book called uh, The Illusion of Conscious Will, where he just like cited study after study after study uh, demonstrating that so many of the decisions and acts we generally attribute to our conscious will are actually performed at the level of the unconscious. I mean, a powerful book. Um, and then, so anyway, because of this research, these um, psychologists, Voos and Schooler in 2008, they became concerned. They say, wait a minute, you know, like all this evidence that we don't have free will, they're afraid, they're afraid the society was going to collapse. They were afraid that if people begin to understand that nobody has a free will, that absolutely nothing is fundamentally up to us, people are going to say to themselves, well, that means I can do whatever I want and you can't hold me accountable. You can't hold me responsible because I don't have a free will. It's not really my fault. So they're afraid that, that our society is going to completely collapse, that, you know, anarchy is going to reign and all. So they began to, like, first, I think, I have a feeling these researchers actually at first attempted to defend free will. But once they realized that was, that was futile because the evidence against free will was so, so unequivocal, you know, then their, their next tack, their next strategy, well, well, let's see if we can kind of like convince the world that actually believing in free will is, is better or, or, or is more useful than, than disbelieving. So what they did, they constructed um, an experiment. Again, I'm going to go into it in much more detail later, but their experiment they induced, they, they primed, they used this, this protocol that Barge used, you know, the priming, inducing people to certain beliefs. So they induced people to believe that they didn't have free will, and then they had a control group, or they, they primed another group to believe that they did have free will, and then they tested them on a cheating experiment in the laboratory. So they found, you know, in this experiment, like they had 20 trials, and the unfree will belief group cheated out of 20 time, uh, trials, an average of 12 times, whereas the free will belief group or the control group cheated an average of about nine times. So there isn't even that much difference between the two. But like in this book, in the chapter on the research, I, I just basically demonstrate that the research, the methodology is actually flawed in various ways. It's, it, the, the experiment was not, they did two experiments. They were not designed well. They were biased and they reached the wrong conclusions. And furthermore, that like testing this 
you know, the, the benefits or detriments of believing in free will with, with a, an artificial experiment like this is really not the way to go. So I actually propose a more effective way to, to, to deal with this, to understand this, as well as like citing a lot of research that suggests very strongly that the blame that, um, that is required, you know, in other words, like, in order to feel blame, to blame someone, you have to believe that they have free will. So this blame that results from free will belief is associated with a lot of harm in society. You know, increased aggression, increased depression, increased anxiety, increased violence. So, so basically, so I, I, I refute Vuzen scholars' um, contention that disbelief in free will is harmful, and I actually make a very strong case that belief in free will is far more harmful than um, disbelief in free will. And, and finally, like in the chapter after that, I just go into like how belief in free will is, again, the, the premise of this book, um, causing or initiating the guilt and the denial that's that's you know to a great extent responsible for for the climate change denial that's that's stopping us from from doing as much as we can all right so uh let's see we're on page three um and now so in in, in this chapter chapter two causality and human will i basically go this is going to be physics okay and so like you know, again, if you don't really understand it, you may have to watch it a few times. You may need to do a bit of research. But it's not all that complicated, but, you know, you might, you know, need to, to just get a, a grounding in some of the concepts that, that I'll try to explain them. But all right, so, like, basically I start out with, with a, a simple basic refutation of free will. Uh, I'll read this. Refuting free will is straightforward. A, everything is caused. B, human thoughts are caused. C, the antecedent causes of human thoughts regress to before the person's birth. And D, therefore, human thoughts are not fundamentally attributable to a human free will. So that's, that's just, that's the outline. That's, that's why free will is impossible. Causality makes free will impossible. Okay, so like, again, some people, some people, some philosophers... Some psychologists have um, have said, "Wait a minute, you know, like they don't believe that everything is caused." And when you think about it, what, what does it mean? Like, if something isn't caused, how does it come about? You know, that's it's a, and it's, a, it's an absurd prospect logically. But but some people, in an effort to defend free will, because they need to believe it, because they 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 fear that like if. If they didn't have a free will, if, you know, if they understood it, then life would be less meaningful or something. You know, some people like interpret this in, in different ways. But anyway, they, you know, for various motivations, they were making the point that, well, no, you know, like some events like human choices, they are not causal. But all right. So, again, if they're not causal, that would mean they are acausal or they're uncaused. And if a decision is uncaused, you can't logically, scientifically, in any other kind of manner, attribute it to anything, including a human will. Okay, so that's what that's what this page is about. And then then again, like they um they say, well there there could be other mechanisms that, that might explain free will. Like they some of them propose that um 
that this mechanism is neither causal nor a causal. You know, it's not about things being caused, and it's not about things being uncaused. It's about things being causing themselves. And in Latin, there's a phrase called causa sui, and it means the cause of itself. And so, essentially, this philosopher Galen Strawson in two thousand in nineteen ninety four. I might as well refer to his um, work here. He basically wrote an article, uh, The Impossibility of Ultimate um, Responsibility in Philosophical Studies, where he makes the case that, that nothing can be cause a sui, nothing can be the cause of itself. Okay, so basically he, he explains how, like, you know, cause a sui proposing that some things cause themselves is not going to defend free will. Again, think about it. If a decision that we make is causing itself, that means we're not causing it. It is causing itself. So that, again, that, that doesn't defend free will. Or some, some people postulate that, well, you know, some things in reality just occur out of nothing. There's, there's a certain kind of like an understanding of the universe it doesn't really make sense because, I mean, you know, one of the fundamental laws of, of nature is that nothing, uh, that um, mass energy can neither be created nor destroyed. So the concept of something coming out of nothing really just, you know, is prohibited by this fundamental um, law of nature. But, you know, some people propose that, yeah, that our decisions arise ex nihilo. Again, another Latin term meaning out of nothing. But think about it. If, if our decisions were to have arise, do uh, arise that way, we would be attributing them to nothing. You know, nothing caused them, however, you know, absurd or illogical that is. In other words, we can't, we can't be attributed um, something that is arising ex nihilo out of nothing. Okay? So, so basically... That covers all the different kinds of, um, you know, attempts to, to defend free will in light of the preponderant evidence that, that causality does govern the universe and that it governs every aspect of the universe, including every human act we do, including every decision. All right, we're on page four. And so, like, what happens, so like, I start out with, like, Newton, you know, Isaac Newton brilliant, brilliant, brilliant scientist. In, um, in 1687, he published his, um, let me see if I can, because it's in Latin, the Principia Mathematica, uh, it's called the Principia, and it's got like, I guess, a, um, all right, Philosophia, Philosophia Naturalis Principia Mathematica, that's kind of like my, um, my gobbled up Latin, but in, in, in English, it's like the Principia Mathematica, principles of natural philosophy, okay? And in it, he kind of like proposes the laws of nature, the fundamental laws of nature, that they're deterministic. In other words, he basically says that like everything has a cause, that if we understand the causes for, you know, the, the planets uh, moving, for, for objects on the earth moving, then we can predict their behavior. We can understand their behavior. Okay, so like basically, so he, he invoked what's known as determinism. Now, here's the thing, and I'm not going to be able to, like, get so into it in this chapter, we've got, or in this episode. We've got a little under four minutes, but I'll, I'll introduce it, and then I'll just reiterate it again at the beginning of the next episode. The problem is, like, that... All right. 
basically what, what Newton was describing is dis described as determinism and like so basically determinism is an explanation of causality that links it to prediction um, let me see how to explain this alright another, another famous um, I think he was a statistician mathematician um, Simon de Pierre Laplace or Laplace in 1814, he wrote his own book, and it is called, um, hold on, um, um, A Philosophical Essay on Probabilities, okay, Pierre-Simon Laplace, and basically he described causality, okay, he starts out by describing causality, and he says, I quote, the present events are connected with preceding ones by a tie based upon the evident principle that a thing cannot occur without a cause which produces it. Okay, basically he's describing causality. Nothing can happen without it being caused. Okay, so that's like, so he presents that and that, you know, Newton is kind of like, you know, uses that in his Principia to explain the, the motion of objects, you know, the, the, um, his, his laws of, of, of motion. Okay, so Laplace says that on page three of his book. But here's the thing. What created a lot of confusion about this, the present confusion, is that people began to conflate determinism or the prediction that's theoretically possible as a result of causality with the causality itself. And in essence, people said, well, you know, like, if everything is caused, that means we should be, in principle, be able to predict everything, you know, because, and I'll get into that, and like, in a certain sense, while, while that is correct, um, but we'd have to know everything about, let's say, the universe to be able to predict completely accurately the future or know the past completely, and the problem is, like, in 1927, the guy named Heisenberg came up with what is known as the Heisenberg Uncertainty Principle that demonstrates quite accurately that we can never obtain that knowledge, because, you know, what he says that we can't, the, the laws of nature, you know, invoking this, um, this constant in nature called Planck's constant, constant, it prohibits us from simultaneously measuring the, the position and momentum of a particle. And because of that, we can't, we don't have access to all the information we need to make <coughs> completely accurate predictions. But the key that I'll get into in this next episode, because I've got like under a minute, is that just the fact that that pro prediction is prohibited does not mean that the motion, the behavior of particles is not being caused. Okay, some people conflated causality with its correlate of prediction and reached the wrong conclusion that if it can't be predicted, maybe it's not causal. I'm, I'm going to explain how that conclusion was completely wrong. Okay, we've got 20 seconds on. Thanks for watching. Again, we're on page uh, four. The book is Free Will, It's Refutation, Societal Cost, and Role in Climate Change Denial. And I'll be back to explain more on the next episode. Thanks for watching.